I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey, go to casper.com, use the code radio, get a new mattress, get $50 off your mattress with our promo code, get some Casper pillow and sheets, just get your whole house Caspered up, lay in your new bed, listen to Rebel Radio, and it will put you right to sleep, and you might have the best night's sleep of your life. Casper.com code radio and terms and conditions apply whatever that means i don't really know what hip-hop ever did for graffiti you'll pay your producer but no one wants to pay for the album cover art or the mural to promote something oh that's just art you guys can do it you should do it for the love all right that was cassie with her controversial quote from today's guest roger gassman and of course you heard from our sponsor casper mattresses Roger is, calls himself a curator of culture. Uh, I think of him as probably the dude in graffiti art and street art around the world. He was a producer on Exit Through the Gift Shop. He created the Art in the Streets exhibit for MOCA here in Los Angeles. He used to be the publisher of While You Were Sleeping magazine, as well as Swindle magazine with Shepard Ferry. And he's got, I don't know, more than dozens of books on graffiti and street art out, including uh, American Graffiti, which is really like the most comprehensive graffiti book I've ever seen. And his new project coming soon, Wall Riders, a documentary and book about kind of the origins of graffiti in the modern era. And we're, we're gonna get into everything we can about his career and the lessons he's learned along the way and really what it takes to build a business out of selling other people's art. Here we go after this EDM.com track of the week.
that was fewer with the EDM.com track of the week. No TV, no radio. If you like that, go to the Trap channel on SoundCloud and you'll hear a lot more like it. Hey, we're live on location at the Work in Progress Gallery with my guest today, Roger Gassman. Let's get into it now. Maybe in 15 years, their kid's going to go to college and maybe they're not in a great financial position anymore, so they want to be able to sell a piece. So I get that, and no one's mad at that. I don't like people that are buying work now that have their idea of in a year and a half, I'm going to sell this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of those people. Yeah. So we stay away. We do our best to stay away from those people. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you know, I know some collectors and, um, you know, I, like I've talked to some who's, who've said like, you know, we buy this stuff, we know it's going to go up in value. Mm-hmm. And then they're just like, but I can never part with a piece. Like yeah. I just end up buying more stuff. I think it's smart to buy. If you're spending five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 on a piece of art, no matter what your financial situation is, I think it's smart to know like, hey, this piece is going to hold its value or sure. not. Yeah. But then you can also think about it like, hey, I'm going to put this in my living room or my office, wherever the hell I'm going to put it, for the next 15 years, 20 mm-hmm. years and live with it. So amortize that cost over 10, 15 years and like, it's kind of the same as like buying a nice sofa or you know, whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, you're going to get so, enjoyment out of it. Yeah, you get enjoyment out of it. So There's that, did you ever see... Um, the kid stays in the picture. Mm-hmm. So he talks about, Robert Evans talks about like when he got his first money, I'm going to screw up the story, but like he was really close to buying this painting and then somebody talked him into, like they told him he was crazy. It was like a quarter of a million dollars. And then he ended up putting that all into stocks and like the market took a dump. The stocks were worth zero and it was water lilies, what he was about to buy, that's now worth, you know, $100 million or something crazy like that. But, but he said, you know, in the book, he said, like, even if that painting was never worth anything, like, what it said to me would have been worth all the money yep. to, to be able to wake up every morning and look at that. And there's so many, uh, there's so much art through the years that I've had the opportunity to buy that I haven't that, yeah. of course, you're kicking yourself for. But there's always going to be something else. Um, is there always going to be that same opportunity? No. But I was never in it to just buy art to sell it. So mm-hmm. even if I would have gotten that art, sure. would I have sold it? No. I would have just you know, probably archived it or framed it better, and it would still be in my collection. Yeah. Um, would I be excited? It's in my collection? Absolutely. But I'm excited about a lot of other things that are already in my collection. Yeah. So uh, you know, it, there's always the opportunity to grow. But... Uh, I think art is a important art is an important investment because it's something you can live with. Mm-hmm. Um, if that piece of art could potentially make the difference of you paying your mortgage or not paying your mortgage that month, or your rent or not your rent, you probably shouldn't buy it, of course. <laughs> but yeah. um, overall, I think it's it's a safe thing to buy and get into. Then yeah. there's also tons of other there's tons of different ways to collect where. The whole screen print market is, an, is is a whole thing right now. The last mm-hmm. several years where people go crazy buying screen prints from a handful of artists you know, that release editions anywhere from a couple hundred bucks to a couple thousand dollars. And yeah. they buy them instantly and before they're even shipped and in their collector's hands, they have already put them on eBay or something mm-hmm. like that to go ahead and flip them, yeah. which drives me crazy. You bought it for 500 bucks, now it's all of a sudden for sale for 1,400 bucks. Sure. Um, yeah. 
We like we we run the Pose website, mm -hmm. and we do the prints. We produce them. We ship them. We sell them. We'll do an edition of a hundred, usually sixteen color, seventeen color hand pulled print. They're beautiful. Uh, he prints them in a studio with with a couple printers. Yeah. Really high attention to detail. And they're great value for what they are. We put them online. They sell out usually within a few hours, which is awesome. Um, you know, it shows he's in demand. Could we probably charge more? Probably, but mm -hmm. it's not about charging more. It's about charging a fair price yeah. for it to get it to the collector base that wants it, that can't afford a $12,000 painting, that loves the imagery. Mm -hmm. And it's a fair price. Uh, and then all of a sudden, we usually see four, five, six people reselling it right away. Right. We say in our email blast, and we say on the site, if you're a known flipper, we will refund your money. They're always going to then just have their girlfriend or someone else sure, buy yeah. it. But yeah. we do our best to always figure out who it is by someone that works for me, writing them, asking for what the print number is mm -hmm. and things like that. And uh, we keep a record of who we send what print number to, and yeah. we ban the person. Yeah. Um, is it flattering then all of a sudden seeing the prints sell for three times what you sold them for? Absolutely. And do you want to see that market go up? Absolutely. But I want to see that market go up in a year when someone needs to sell their print because they need to buy a new car or something like that. Not where they yeah. just bought it to instantly sell it. Yeah, sure. So it, I got off track. But in, in talking with people about how to collect and why to collect, you could say, oh, I don't have $5,000 to buy that painting. But yet they buy 10 prints that year that are mm -hmm. three to 600 bucks each. Mm -hmm. Do those prints really hold that value then after they spend a couple hundred bucks framing each one like why wouldn't they just buy one nice painting for six grand that year yeah you know and really then instead of having their walls filled with a bunch of prints again nothing wrong with a bunch of prints because certain people collect that and that's their thing um but for my money i would rather save my money all year and buy one nice piece of art because mm -hmm. If that's a smart purchase and you really know who you're dealing with to get it, there's a much better chance that piece of art will go up in value. And as you grow and age, you'd probably rather have a lot of nice paintings in your house than a bunch of nice prints. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of what I do is talk to collectors, uh, especially young collectors, about how they're collecting and why. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I mean, it must be good, though, you know, to, I get the frustration maybe of the seeing the stuff on eBay, but, but it also drives demand. Oh, absolutely. Because right? in, in some ways it's marketing for the artist. It's great and it's horrible. Like, yeah. It's awesome seeing it. That's what drives people to continue to want to get them, not just the quality, seeing that, oh shit, you missed out. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to get it now. It's not like we save half of them to sell later. Like, right. We save a couple for ourselves and yeah. they're gone. Yeah. So it, it's, it's definitely, it, it works both ways. Again, we're totally cool with people reselling things. We just want people to resell things for the right reasons, not sure. just to make a buck. Yeah. Do you remember the first piece you ever bought? The first piece I ever bought, that's a good question. I was thinking about that the other day, trying to come up with what it was. Um, I don't really remember. Um, early on, I was trading for art. Mm. Um, some friends, I sold spray paint caps, the tips that go mm -hmm. on cans of paint that do different things. So this is... Um, mid late 90s i had a lot of friends that were starting to do art and you know the paintings were 300 bucks 500 bucks not that expensive we were selling a bag of caps for like 75 bucks so mm -hmm. somebody would want you know a box of twenty thousand caps cool give me a painting so i was getting paintings early on like that um some early art i bought probably would have been shepherd fairy prints um some early dalek paintings from mm -hmm. him 
uh, I remember being at a show in Cleveland, Ohio, and I bought a painting of a pig, like with some goofy farmer. I don't remember who made it or anything about it. Yeah. I remember it was like 300 bucks, and I was like, it's kind of a lot of money. Um, also, some of the other early things that I bought that I'm really happy I did. Um, this is in the, I think, 99 or 2000 uh, revs of the duo revs and cost out of New York uh, got arrested. Mm-hmm. And he had a whole bunch of work he was about to put up on the streets. And he doesn't sell his work. He's impossible to dig up. And he did a show at the space, uh, Space 1026 in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And he was selling the works. And they were probably from 150 to 500 bucks. And I bought this metal sculpture, I think, for 350 bucks, which was so crazy for me at the time. Like, I'm buying a piece of art for 350 bucks? <laughs> what am I doing? Like, you know. Sure. And those, they're impossible to get. Yeah. Uh, when I do see a few of those resale, they resale for 10, 15 grand or more. I would never sell mine. It's not about how much it's worth now. It could have devalued. Mm-hmm. And I'm still excited I have it. Um, mm-hmm. that, that was a big thing I got early on uh, nice. for, for myself that I'm, I'm still really happy I have. You know what, man, as I've gotten older, I've realized how important a good night's sleep is. You know, I used to be like up all night, out, doing whatever, acting bad, and uh, just figured I would sleep when I die. But now, if I don't sleep, I feel like I've died. On this show, we talk about creatives, artists, business people trying to build something, and I think you really can't do that unless you get some sleep. It's hard, you know, you're on the road, you're in meetings, you're prepping to be launching something, but you gotta get your sleep. And so our sponsor, Casper Mattresses, is trying to help you do that. They have a mattress that was named one of the best inventions of 2015 from Time Magazine. They're making pillows and sheets, engineered to get you a good night's sleep. Can you believe that? Not just made, but engineered. And most importantly, they're willing to let you test it out for 100 nights. Free shipping, free returns, if for some odd reason you'd want to return it. But you can go to casper.com and use the code radio, get $50 towards your purchase of the mattress. That's casper.com, code radio. That's our own code special for Rebel Radio. Use it. We get none of that money, but you will get a good night's sleep and $50 off your mattress at casper.com. Oh yeah, hey, terms and conditions apply. And so before you guys started in all this, I know you were, you were a writer yourself. How'd that happen? Um, How'd you get? I ran around in DC in the early '90s. Uh, a bunch of my friends were into hardcore and punk rock. They all had, uh, you know, graffiti names. It was the thing to do at the time, and that's kind of just what happened. You're running around doing it, and uh, through the years, I would end up in a certain city with a friend's band and meet someone there, meet someone there. I was. It's what led me to LA in the mid '90s, where I met a lot of the people that I'm still friendly with. I think mm-hmm. I. I met you know, Saber and Push under a bridge with bus when I was 15 and, you know, 1995 or 94, what, probably 94. And, yeah. you know, stayed friends with people like that through the years. So uh, as the years went on, I ended up um, publishing a magazine and 
stayed friends with a lot of the same people and slowly stopped writing as much graffiti and ended up just representing a lot of my friends that were doing it and helping place them uh, with work with the brands we were working with and mm -hmm. with galleries that were calling, et cetera, and sort of phased out of that world and sort of archiving it and uh, telling the story uh, historically. I've really enjoyed digging up history in various cities, um, done dozens and dozens of books yeah. for certain artists and or telling histories. Um, yeah. So I feel like my role is much more important and or valuable doing that than running around writing on shit. But I like writing on shit. Yeah, sure. Well, so, you know, I've been excited to, to talk to you. Um, you know, I think in the world of, of graffiti and street art, like you've been you've been a part of, you know, everything major that it, I think that has helped bring that kind of art into the mainstream, right? So from Art in the Streets to, um, like you said, countless books uh, and, and documentaries. Uh, and so I'm no. curious what, um, you know, you talk about that rush of kind of doing it where mm -hmm. you're not supposed to do, but that's changed in a lot of ways, right? And now we're sitting here in our gallery. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the rush has totally changed. Um, I don't know if there's that one particular rush anymore. It's yeah. kind of just go, 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 go. Um, I'm lucky that most of the work I do, I enjoy. Mm -hmm. And it's with a lot of my friends um, and or new friends. I think my biggest rush right now is still when I'm able to dig through archives. And I find that one photo from 1971 that has this yeah. one tag in it, like in the corner that six people in the world probably care about. But right. like, for whatever reason, in this library archive, I found this photo that was not shot for that piece of graffiti. It was shot for the car wreck that was in front of it or the city surveyor shooting that block, mm -hmm. what, what have you. And I find that photo and it has that one marking in it. Yeah. Those are the things that I get really excited about. Even, uh, I also do a lot of work with punk rock mm -hmm. and hardcore stuff. You know, you're digging through someone's storage space for some old flyers and they have six stacks they forgot about since 1982 right. or things like that. I, yeah. I think a lot of that dig is the rush now, but preserving the history is mm -hmm. something I find so important and that gives me a rush. I mean, behind me here is a cornbread tag. Cornbread, for all intents and purposes, is the first true graffiti writer for the sake of writing your name over and over again mm -hmm. and leaving your neighborhood. He started in Philadelphia in 1965 in reform school yeah. where he got the name Cornbread. By <clears throat> early 1967, he was on the streets of Philadelphia writing throughout the city, going all city, not just you know on his six blocks like mm -hmm. a lot of people had. Yeah. Um, he was in town for a show, friendly with him, he ended up here. So he did a Cornbread tag on the wall. All the true graffiti nerds that come through here, out of everything in here, this is what they want to see and this yeah. is what they want to take pictures of. Sure. You know, Cornbread never made art. This is this is what Cornbread does. Mm -hmm. um, he's in his mid 60s, still is in Philadelphia, and he's kind of in a way, you know, he's grown a lot, but you know, he's the same kid mm -hmm. that he was in 1967. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, he hasn't illegally written on the streets for years now, probably longer than I've been alive. Yeah. But, um, He's still there. We have a huge project coming out in January called Wall Writers that he's a major part of. Oh, cool. It's a documentary film that I worked on on and off for the last seven years. When I was working on the book, The History of American Graffiti, I was so into finding who really were the first true graffiti writers, mm -hmm. not 
cave painting, not this, you know, for, right. for the sake of what we define graffiti, yeah. modern day graffiti as. And everyone wants to say they started six months earlier, two years earlier. <laughs> and when you're talking about the early, early days, those six months really do count for what it is. Sure. Um, and I luckily stumbled into a few really early people that were telling me the truth, Taki183 being one and a few others that you know, could really pinpoint months and then to say, no, I was, people are saying I'm the first, but I'm not. There's these four guys that taught me. Mm-hmm. No one's ever really freaking heard of them. Let's call them. Yeah. So I started talking to these people and I figured, you know what, I might as well start filming this. A lot of these people have never done interviews before. They might never do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not be able to be found again or they might die. Mm-hmm. So we started filming it with no real goal in mind. And I ended up with a crap load of footage of really unique, interesting people from New York and Philadelphia. And we'd done film projects before, so we figured, well, let's make a film. Seven years later, uh, we have a documentary about the true birth of graffiti in Philadelphia and New York, 1967 to 73, called Wall Riders. It doesn't really go into the train movement or anything like that. It talks about kids and the development of style. Mm -hmm. It's really simple handwriting. Then the first person to a star, the first person to a crown. That leads to a simple piece. Uh, We talk about the first time graffiti goes in the galleries in 1973, which has nothing to do with hip hop um, in the 1980s movement, which, you know, because that doesn't, while that exists, it's not recorded. People aren't talking about it. Uh, You know, it's its whole thing. John Waters is the voiceover. We have a whole book that goes along with it that's an encyclopedia slash history book slash museum catalog size of almost a phone book mm-hmm. and we're going to start screening that in the middle of january and we'll be rolling that out slowly all through Jan- all through uh 2016 awesome that's great so that's a whole other thing yeah no that's amazing but that stuff gives me a rush you know yeah telling that true history well you mentioned something um you know uh for me like i always connect graffiti and hip-hop mm-hmm and, you know, partly because that was my personal experience of kind of learning those two things at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, late 70s, early 80s. Um, and partly because, you know, hip hop has really embraced that. They've called it one of the elements mm-hmm. of hip hop culture. Um, and I have a huge argument for that. Yeah, please. It drives me crazy. <laughs> um, I understand how graffiti and hip hop get connected. No yeah. question. Uh, the early films, Wild Style and Style Wars, connect the two of them yep one of the reasons style wars connects it is they didn't have enough graffiti footage and they discovered hip-hop and breakdancing as they were filming really so they started filming that yeah so a lot of the writers were into it but also if you watch that movie someone like cap who's talking about walking around with a shotgun you know the racial slurs coming out of that guy's mouth He's not going to see any hip hop shows. Sure. You know, he's, uh, you know, they're listening to Iron Maiden, you know, is the whiz, all those guys, while they might respect it and like it, that's the last thing they're listening to or Mm -hmm. care about. Um, Mm -hmm. So hip hop more, I think, embraced graffiti than the other way around. And it looked, and it became a backdrop for it. It became the artwork for it. Yeah. Um, I, don't know really what hip-hop ever did for graffiti if you think about it of course there's certain um, hip-hop artists that have collected paintings and commissioned mm-hmm. things through the years but for saying this is an element of it i would expect more financial respect from it 
you'll pay your producer, mm-hmm. you'll pay the guy giving you the beat, but no one wants to pay her for the album cover art or the mural to you know promote something. Oh, that's right. just art. You guys can go do it. I've seen that happen in my other world time and time again when people connect the two from the mid-90s on uh, when people wanted to, at record labels we were working with wanting us to do art. Yo, it's an element, you should do it for the love. I'm like, <laughs> and again, I'm like, are you working at the label for the love? Like, right. or this or that? And they'd be like, no, I, I get paid. Like, yeah. so we should go paint this basically for the cost of our paint. Like, right. what's, and not everyone is like that, so I don't want to say the whole hip hop community is like that. But I get it. Graffiti is its own thing mm-hmm. um, that I think is that graffiti is its own thing that I know is loved and embraced by as many different backgrounds and musical genres in a way as hip hop. Yeah. Um, there was graffiti, and graffiti was a huge full blown culture before there was any real kind of hip hop out there. Mm-hmm. People were, you know, tinkering with hip hop and developing hip hop, you know, in the early seventies for the most part. And sure. it gets large in the late seventies, early eighties. Graffiti was full blown cultures in many cities by then. Yeah. You know, where people had nothing to do with hip hop. Also hip hop was uh, you know, people watched the PBS documentary Style Wars mm-hmm. around the country and that's what all of a sudden the kid in Cleveland who had never written graffiti before they see PBS documentary style wars. Oh, I'm going to write graffiti and I'm going to break dance. Yeah. It instantly spreads it, which I get it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the biggest artists of today, you know, if, if we think, and I'm maybe not the expert at this, but you know, I think of Shepard, mm-hmm. I think of Banksy, mm-hmm. um, not really hip hop guys. No, I mean, I don't know what Banksy listens to, but, uh, I wouldn't guess that he's like could be. That that's I mean, if you life. look at the lineup of what but certainly Shepard, you know, this punk yeah. rock guy, and but he still loves and respects a lot of hip hop. Yeah, of course, but he's not a hip hop kid, like exactly in the way that Hayes was, or exactly. Um, but too, Hayes starts writing graffiti and is being really well known as SE three, right, in the mid seventies, right. Yeah, before that, so certainly. he ends up doing so much hip hop work though because. He's a graphic designer mm-hmm. being hired to do it. And yeah. yes, I'm sure he's friends with a lot of those people, but it's also jobs you know, mm-hmm. where he's a graphic designer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, of course. So he's not necessarily doing it just because of yeah. uh, the love. So go back, to, you were talking about that rush. And, you know, for kids today starting out, mm-hmm. right? Like, again, you know, if you think 20 years ago, the rush, you know, maybe was getting up. The rush was like, uh, you know, sort of counterculture, kind of being where you're not supposed to be. And and for most people, that was as big as you were going to get. Mm-hmm. Was having an all city piece or having, you know, kind of being hood famous. Um, but you know, today this is you could be in a in a Roger Gaspin movie. Like you could <laughs> today. You could be, today, I think a rush for a lot of kids is internet fame. Yeah. Um, I think that's mostly the people that that's the rush for won't ever get very far with their careers. Right. But that's the rush is, you know, internet banging basically, you know, you're on Instagram, Facebook, or one of those zillions of uh, message boards. And that's what you care about. Like Mm -hmm. you're, you're like literally arguing with your friends about likes you got or arguing back and forth, you know, creating online beef. I think that's a rush for a lot of kids today. And I constantly hear about it. Yeah. 
So talk about that. Like we've, we've heard, you know, at nauseum how the internet and social media and all that has changed music. Mm-hmm. How's it changed art? Graffiti up to probably 2005, 2006, maybe a little earlier. Um, I could look at a photo and tell, make a pretty good educated guess about where in the world that person was from or mm-hmm. where in the country that person was from. I'd be wrong sometimes, but I could make a pretty educated guess. And that was due to the color schemes that were being used, the style, the loops, the arrows, etc. Yeah. And you would be influenced by other styles from other cities um, that you'd see in magazines or some books here and there. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't the huge explosion of the social media and the message boards right. as much till you know, 2004, 2005 is when I really start seeing that explode. And you can do something in the suburbs of Chicago where no Chicago writer will ever see it. And it could look like you're from L.A. Mm-hmm. because you've been influenced by L.A. work. And with all the new spray paint that's come out, the Iron Lac, the Montana, the Belton, all the European spray paint um, that's made for graffiti with amazing color schemes, you can order it online. You can go to your local skate shop and buy it. So instead of having to go to the local hardware stores and steal it or figure out how to scam it or buy it, which mm-hmm. comes with uh, you, most cities often had certain color palettes in the way that the hardware stores would order. Right. Um, you know, not always, but you could, you could kind yeah. of tell. And all of that's disappeared because people are getting the European paint and people are being influenced by what happened in Brazil last night, what happened in Germany, what happened in London, and they're meshing it all together with some 1982 New York style, and it looks crazy. Mm-hmm. It's been awesome in a way because it's helped create new styles. It's helped bring old styles back to life of writers that were running around Boston, New York, whatever, doing a certain style in the early 80s for three years. Now those writers have nothing to do with graffiti anymore, but their photo albums got out there and people see their style and now it's getting a new spin or, or a new life. So yeah. I, I think it's been just as helpful as it has been uh, a hindrance, probably same with music, movies, film, and everything else, mm-hmm. you know, where we could, uh, you know, argue, argue the positives and the negatives. I know sure. when we release a print for someone or we have an event and things like that, it's the best form of advertising and right. awareness to get people places. So I can't be mad at it. Yeah. I just have to be careful how we choose to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, so, you, you've been a big part of sort of legitimizing the art form, right? Like I've tried. <laughs> well, you have. You created a show, you know, uh, Art in the Streets. That um, I don't Mo- know if it's the biggest. It was Mo- Art in the Streets was Mocha's biggest show, and to my knowledge, there's never been any sort of museum show or experience in the world yeah. to bring through even half that many people. Yeah, I'm sure there's been outdoor graffiti festivals and things like that, right. but nothing in a museum environment that shows true historical pieces. Yeah. So how does that, you know, when, so we met when I was working on Scion mm-hmm. and we were doing an art series and, um, you know, it started with just hiring artists to paint on the sides of cars and then turned out everyone was happy with the work. So we thought, let's put a tour together and let's go do this. And part of what got the clients really excited was let's give some of these guys their first gallery shows. Mm-hmm. Like there was a lot of guys that we were working with who had never painted indoors 
or had their work shown indoors. And, you know, that was something that this brand could give to them. And, um, but that's very different today, right? Like, you know, you've, you've helped to change that and that world has just changed that, you know, we're sitting in a, in a gallery full of that kind of art. Um, Absolutely. The graffiti and street art, especially street art, has become such a buzzword the last 10, 12 years. Yeah. Um, where graffiti and street art are not subcultures. They're, they're entire cultures with a lot of subcultures that have spun off of it. Mm-hmm. And street art has become a way to get people into the galleries instantly. I'm a street artist. All of a sudden, that means they come up with an icon. They put up a bunch of stickers, a couple wild pastes, mm-hmm. a stencil, whatever, for six months, take a few pictures, build a website, do one or two on a canvas, and all of a sudden they have a show at the skate shop down the street, or they have this yeah. or that. And all of a sudden, ooh, look at this edgy street artist. They're not an edgy street artist for the most part. They did maybe two dozen illegal things that, for the most part, were pretty damn safe. Right. Um, yeah. They didn't put in work in music, and film, whatever you do. Um, especially graffiti and street art, you need to put in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to climb those rooftops, you know, s- scale the fences, what have you, for years and years to get yeah. respect from your peers. And this whole new crop of street artists aren't really street artists. They are muralists and artists influenced by graffiti and street art. Mm-hmm. And if you look at their work, you can easily tell that. Um, you know, the Shepherd Ferry School, the Banksy School, so many different not direct ripoffs, but influences. And that made me so mad for so long. And I've kind of gotten over it and I'm not that mad at it anymore because uh-huh. it shows how big the culture's got. You can go to Blick and get a stencil kit. You can, yeah. um, you know, get spray paint in all these stores. That's helped the culture and made the culture expand. And when we do a new book, there's new eyes for it. So I've really just looked at it as there's true graffiti artists, there's true street artists, then there's new wave of muralists and artists that are not doing illegal work, but it's in the same style and vein of graffiti and street art. So that then I feel makes my job more important so I can help collectors, reporters, whomever it is, weed through it and understand who you can call a street artist, who you can call a graffiti artist. Mm -hmm. Because calling a true graffiti artist a street artist is pretty insulting. And explaining what the gallery work is what the studio work is. If you look at the front of this work in progress show we have here, there's a Pose mural on the front. A Pose mural looks 0% like Pose graffiti. Mm-hmm. And Pose is not a street artist, does not want to be called a street artist, doesn't want to be called a graffiti artist for painting a mural like that. He painted a mural. Um, right. That's what he was doing. Um, yes, he painted most all of it in spray paint, but it's a mural. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's a graffiti artist if you want to call him anything. Sure. So how does that change your process, right? Because, you know, you started your career, um, you know, I know you had while you were sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. As, a, as a way of like documenting this culture and, you know, bringing it to, I don't know if I'd say a wider audience, but allow, allowing the audience that was interested in an art to kind of dig deeper, right? It changes my job. It makes me more of an educator, which I cringe when I say that <laughs> um, because Anything educational is the last thing I think I ever would have wanted to do in my life if you asked me when I was a teenager. Um, I have continued to dig up historical facts 
teach people about things and bring things forward in books, film, or just have it buried in my archive if someone needs it mm -hmm. um, to casual conversations at dinner with my girlfriend's friends, um, yeah. whatever it is. Uh, so how polluted in a way this world has become of graffiti and street art with so many different artists, so many different things and helping people understand what's real, what's authentic mm -hmm. and what artists, although this is pretty, this artist has no legitimacy in this world and no respect from their peers in this yeah. world. And this is their first body of work they've ever made. So is it worth anything? Not really. It's the first body of work they've ever made. It might be beautiful. Yeah. And if you want it and you love it, sure, buy it, but I can't be behind it. Right. Uh, so many times you can work on the street for 20 years and be so famous from your name on the street. Being able to take your work inside is a whole other job. Yeah. You can't always only take what you did outside and put it inside. For a few artists, that's of course worked, but mm -hmm. for the most part, you need to take lessons from outside and figure out how to transfer that energy indoors. So what, what kind of lessons, like how would you coach an artist that's trying to make that transition? Make bodies and bodies of work. If you want to draw a cat, draw a cat. Draw 20 pictures of a cat, photograph them all well, burn them, throw them mm -hmm. away, store them, give them to friends, doesn't matter. But it shows you made a body of work. Um, the biggest mistake I see people making is not making cohesive bodies of work. Mm. They'll draw a cat, they'll draw an elephant, they'll go do a still life of something, then they'll make an abstract painting and then do three photo collages and they'll be like, come look at my new show. You walk in, it looks like six different artists made the show. Right. There's nothing cohesive about it and it's hard to get behind an artist who doesn't know where they're going in their career. Mm -hmm. You always want to see an artist progress and change and build, but you want to be able to have some kind of connections between the paintings. If you want to go do a series on wildlife, go do a series on wildlife, but that either should all be collages or that should all be paintings or you know, right. some of these are oil paintings and then some of these are oil with collage, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm not the mm -hmm. artist, I can't tell you, but it's building bodies of work and continuing to build bodies of work, not just building one and saying, okay, here I'm an artist. And then being patient because it's an investment in yourself. You're probably not gonna sell anything your first show. You're probably gonna get, if you're famous on the street, you're gonna get 500 or 1,000 kids to show up that wanna see what you did on the street on a canvas. Most of them don't have any money to buy anything. They'll buy a t-shirt, right. they'll buy a book, yeah. they'll buy a pin, but they're not gonna buy a painting. They'll buy a poster. Mm -hmm. So it's not being discouraged and it's saying, okay, what did I learn from this experience? How can I get better materials next time? You know, don't go to an art store and just buy some canvas that's on sale and, ooh, I found this found object, I'm gonna paint on it. Like, you know, care about your materials, care about how you are showing your work hmm. um, and keep building bodies of work and documenting those bodies of work and keep finding new and better places to show it. Mm -hmm. So it feels like in, in music, Right, that that need to have credibility to kind of sort of come up from the streets, or you know, or or come up through the right know, channels, hard work and patience, whatever yeah. that means in your genre. Right, it feels like that is a little bit null and void. 
relative to commercial success today, mm-hmm. right? And certainly in, in hip hop, we can say that, you know, at one point, like that street cred was essential. You couldn't, you weren't going to have a mm-hmm. successful career without it. Now, now you have a YouTube video. Right. And, 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 and it works commercially, right? Mm-hmm. And so is that still, is that true with art? Like are the things you're saying about, you know, Ups. put the time and the, the investment in, like, are there people just getting famous and, and without you, that? You, you hit it perfectly. It's very, very similar. Yeah. Where the artists that are respected by their peers and the artists that have really made it are people that put in the work. Right. And, of course, there's a handful of people that the true community kind of shakes their head at. And they'll never be in a great museum show. They'll never be here. They'll never be there unless they sucker somebody into it. But they could be selling a million dollars worth of art a year and telling everybody else, ooh, I did this, I did that. Yeah. And the eye showed with this person. I mean, there's a dozen people I could name right now, but I won't give mm-hmm. them that, uh, that pleasure. Sure. Uh, but it, it's very similar, absolutely. There's you know, the, the YouTube hip-hop star. There's the you know, YouTube street art graffiti star mm-hmm. who's now in, hanging in the celebrity home near you. Nice. Um, what about, uh, you know, your, so how has your career evolved? Like you talked about, you sort of become an educator. Um, like, does that keep you excited? Or like, how do you find motivation to keep digging and keep, keep discovering new stuff? And There's always going to be more out there to go find. Uh, there's always going to be a new archive that gets unearthed. Um, I get Art in the Streets was exciting to me because of the amount of people that got to see the show yeah. and the amount of people that didn't know about the work. I get excited when people come through gallery spaces we do, events we do that don't know about the work but they're interested in it, and we get to teach them about it. Mm-hmm. So I continue to be excited by planning what that next large-scale project will be and how I'm going to expand the reach of this world at the same time respect the built-in audience and the built-in artists of this world. So figuring out the next you know, large-scale things are you know, what I'm looking to do and always looking to do and excite me. Um, I don't look at myself as an art dealer. I definitely place a lot of art with collectors and help a handful of artists figure out their next moves and what's going to happen but again it's sort of just a role i've i've come into mm-hmm. um my life doesn't depend on selling art um i enjoy doing it and of course it's monetarily beneficial often but yeah. you know i look at it more as i'm helping the artists if i can privately sell six paintings out of their studio a year I'm helping them be able to do what they want to keep doing and exploring new things and building than them having to prep for a show, go out here and show everything publicly all the time. And the best thing for an artist is to every year, year and a half, or even two years, depending on the artist, have an awesome, holy shit, banger of a show. Mm-hmm. Um, not 12 group shows and this little thing and this little thing. You know, Figure out how to do something that really counts. And to do that, you need to be constantly selling work privately. Um, whether it's through your gallery selling it privately or through a few consultants that are selling it privately, that's the best thing that can happen for an artist is they can sell a handful of pieces out of their studio privately, either through their gallery or consultant. No one knows those pieces exist. It's gone. And then all of a sudden, 
that you know was their living expenses, their studio expenses, their whatever you want for uh, for the year, for the year and a half, while mm -hmm. they could plan and plot this huge show. So I, I try and help artists do that. Do you run into surprises? There's always surprises, um, good and bad, from people you meet and come in contact with um, that become new friends that it randomly sent a website, an email to a website that want a painting that all of a sudden you have 16 things in connection with to someone that came in for a piece of art or to a show that you end up working on a totally different project with, uh, to someone whose aunt had an archive of something, uh, to just someone being a scumbag that disappoints you. Um, yeah. And once in a while I like to do shows with a handful of artists, uh, like the Work in Progress show we're sitting in right now, and mm -hmm. work with four or five artists that you know are gonna come through for you that you have a steady relationship with and you know are responsible, then work with three, four, five artists you've never worked with before to see what happens. Right. Because if they screw you up or they don't do what they said they were gonna do, it's not the end of the world. But mm -hmm. if you had invested in them as a two-person show or something like that and they couldn't come through, you're screwed. So sure. I'm, I'm often surprised, but I look at a, a group shows often as a, an experience to see how responsible people are gonna be and how well their studios will work with you and, you know, how much they will help push things in the in the proper direction. Mm -hmm. So a lot of surprises come that way too. Go to Casper.com, use the code RADIO for $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. You can test out the mattress for 100 nights. I don't even know why you need 100. You, you'll probably know in the first couple nights that you like it, but if you need a, you can test it for 100. I don't know, 90. What's the difference? It's free shipping, free returns. Everything's free, basically, except the mattress. And if you use the code RADIO, you get $50 off. Casper.com. Terms and conditions apply. So talk about the role as a, as a gallerist or a curator, right? That, you know, <clears throat> we're seeing in so many other areas of, of uh, just commerce of sort of like, the artist now could sell direct. Yes. Right, and doesn't need a middleman maybe in the same way that that was necessary in the past. Absolutely, uh, again, through mostly social media, a lot of artists are able to sell a lot more directly yeah. to their audience. Um, galleries definitely look down upon that because it's breaking the gallery mold. Of course. Um, a lot of galleries will have a show with an artist every 16 months, every 18 months, whatever it is, and they may not sell a single piece of their work other than in one group show they do, and that's mm -hmm. it. I think it's made galleries work harder. A gallery can't just call you every 12 months, but cool, what are you doing for the show in six months? Um, right. The gallery that's usually taking 50% needs to show you how hard they're working and yeah. what they're doing, and needs to be constantly pushing you as an artist and be behind you and be behind you and your growth as an artist. Mm -hmm. If the gallery can never sell a painting over $10,000, that gallery better figure out how to start selling paintings over $10,000 or they're going to lose that artist. Yeah. So I, I think as a gallerist, I've, I've learned that you need to be able to have collectors of all different financial backgrounds and means because if you can only sell a painting for eight or ten thousand dollars the artists that you helped get to that level are going to leave you 
Sure. And they're not going to leave you because they're not your friends. They're going to leave you because other people are calling that can now sell the painting for twenty and thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. And financially and life wise, that's in career wise, that's what they should be doing. So, so teach us, what does it take to sell a painting? You know, for fifty thousand dollars from an artist who was previously getting five. It takes a lot of growth. Um, it takes the artist's work getting better and growing and it takes the artist doing several shows and mm. creating a lot of bodies of work because the people for the most part you're always going to have the random person with a lot of money that just wants to buy something I just made a lot of money on my app and this is cool I don't right. get it but you know and yes you want some of those collectors but you want a re real collectors with real collections because when your art goes into someone's collection who has a real collection they have the Liechtenstein they have the Warhol they have the Rauschenberg and all of a sudden they have a pose like oh shit like they have yeah. a good eye they have a nice collection you know I'd rather sell to someone like that than someone that just made a bunch of money on an app unless that person that just made a bunch of money on an app wants to start a real collection mm -hmm. but you need a couple of both of course. To, to even it out but yeah. for an artist to be able to sell money to, for an artist to be able to sell their works for real money they need to be patient and they need to invest in themselves as artists creating more and more works, creating more bodies of work, not oversaturating the market. If you have your work available at six galleries around the world or six galleries around the country, someone wants one of your pieces, they're gonna call each gallery, see what they have, and see who will give them the best price. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sh shop around. Yeah. Um, so you need to make sure your work is not overly available, you're not oversaturating the market, and your work's just continuing to grow. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Uh, sort of, not really. No, I think so. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, like, as a seller of art, mm -hmm. like, how do you, how do you make that jump? Right, like, how do we've, you... We've, we've made that jump. Yeah. Um, but again, it's just being patient. It's meeting new people and expanding your reach. Um, but as the art we have available gets better, more yeah. people are interested. Uh, so much of it is word of mouth, you know. You're sitting across from me right now. You might say, hey, my friend just moved into a new house. He's looking for some new pieces. Like, mm -hmm. this is some cool stuff. I want to turn you on to him. You know, your friend could be a great hedge fund guy who has money and is interested in art and who's never really bought it before but wants to learn about it. Yeah. Like, that's great. Like, I'm looking at it in, uh, for, with a couple different eyes on with a, I mean, a couple different, couple different views. Like, this is someone that can help support these artists. Mm -hmm. And this is also someone who we can educate and build a nice collection for. It's exciting to build a nice collection for someone, you know, and go out and find, you know, I want the, if someone says, I want the end all be all street art collection, or I want the end all be all like true graffiti innovators collection, you know, those are two different things. Like right. I've helped people create both of those. So yeah. it's fun shopping around, looking around and digging for those right pieces for someone. What goes in the, and I'll be all street art collection. So much. <laughs> so much. Um, I don't want to, again, name too many names, but yeah. Fair enough. A, a, a lot goes into it. But also a lot of surprises go into it, too. Yeah. Um, you know, someone like a Richard Hamilton that a lot of people you know, don't know that name. Like, mm -hmm. great, great person. Early, important artist. Uh, Shadow Men from uh, New York City. Um, Gordon Mata Clark, there's a lot of people that have reached high, high museum uh, 
there's a lot of people that have like the Gordon Monte Clarks that are so important to the street art world. Yeah. And most people don't even know who he is, but yet he's a museum artist. Yeah. So it's it's finding the right pieces and not just ooh here's a piece salvaged from the street and here's this stencil on this because the work has expanded from that mm-hmm. or do you want work in your collection that's more reminiscent of the street then that's a whole other thing to go find so th- th- those things are exciting and really how we find the collectors it's just word of mouth and something else I often try and do is introduce the collectors to the artists most gallerists don't like to do that mm-hmm. other than at an opening you meet the artist for a minute or they have a dinner and invite some collectors but they usually want to keep them separate yeah, because they don't yeah. want the collectors to be able to have too much access. I do my best to introduce the artist to the collectors. And if the artist wants to go around me, if the collector wants to go around me, I probably don't want to do business with them in the future anyway. Mm-hmm. So I've quickly learned my lesson with that artist and that collector. Um, have you always, like that, to me, that's a very mature, confident perspective, right? And I, I try and choose who I work with well. Have you always had that? I've done my best to, and of course, I, I've been burned many times, but I don't regret that I'm not working with those people yeah. anymore at all. Uh, I've won way more times, and the artist then sees who their collectors are, mm-hmm. and the collector gets excited about the art and yeah. understands who the people are as people, not just as artists. and you usually win because they talk about the piece more to their friends at dinner, their coworkers, their cousin, whomever the hell it is, and the artist they met, not just the painting they got. Mm-hmm. And then that usually leads to repeat business yeah. and new business through that person. Yeah. Because you weren't afraid to create that relationship. Yeah. Nice. Um, well, I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned oversaturation. Um, and, you know, I know you've worked with Shepard Ferry a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys had Swindle Magazine together. Mm-hmm. I was looking through my one of my early copies the other day, and it's still, you know, beautiful Thank you. piece of work. Um, uh, but, you know, Shepard, I think, is, is, you know, maybe the most exposed mm-hmm. artist in the world today, possibly, given the number of T-shirts and the amount of free art that's hanging on, you know, what struck me about Shepard is I haven't been to a country where I haven't seen an Andre sticker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been all over the world and I see it everywhere. And, um, but, you know, he's also wildly successful selling originals, right? Um, why does that work? His ideas from early on was about being able to get the work out there and make the work affordable and get it out more and more and more and more and expose it to new audiences and new crowds. Uh, Through the stickers, that of course happened very quickly. Mm -hmm. Through his success in traveling with stickers, uh, you mail someone a package, you put in some stickers, that person keeps one, puts one up, gives one to a friend. Yeah. So it's just constantly spread. Um, The graphics are good. Most of them are easily digestible by a huge group of people most of the people most of the graphics also have deeper messages to them mm-hmm. that i'm sure a majority of the people that are looking at them don't even get that get the deeper message but that's yeah. okay sure or, or the reference it's on i think enough people do get the message um he's been successful because he's been able to i think understand different levels 
I know you can have clothing and that's one thing you can have fine art and that's one thing I think he's just inserted himself in many different worlds and been fairly careful about what in those worlds to do and not in those worlds to do of course is some of it over a little oversaturated here and there of course but you know then that gets pulled back and I could sit here and argue it's not out there enough or it's too oversaturated but in the end he constantly has shows that sell out from Mm -hmm. more expensive canvas one-off work to print shows to lines of clothing so is it oversaturated if it's selling out you know his so much of his his ideas are supply and demand it's even what he called his Mm -hmm. major book so there's the demand for it and he's doing his best to supply what he can and he's careful with the fine art that he's not oversupplying it to keep it to a real value and a real art so it's not just mass produced Mm -hmm. and the fine art is something in the last well he was always making fine art but the fine art in the last five to eight years has just become incredibly better and more defined and I think part of that putting maybe I'm putting words in my mouth is due to the fact that he can spend the time to create what he wants to create experiment how he wants to create because he's having success in these other places so if it takes him an extra six months to make the new series of fine art because he wants to learn a new collage technique or experiment with a new collage technique Mm -hmm. he can Mm -hmm. and that's because he's able to have success in these other venues so he doesn't just have to pump work out for the sake of eating he pumps work out for the sake of art and what he wants to do and the message he wants to portray Um, but he's definitely an anomaly like that there's not really many other artists you can look at you know that have done that I mean Keith Haring at the pop shop and Mm -hmm. you know there's Andy Warhol stuff on everything but again you can't really compare a pop the pop shop from the 80s to what's going on now Um, and you can't really compare licensing of Andy Warhol to what's going on now but it's you know you you could you, you can definitely compare it in a bigger picture well, and the other thing about Shepard is he's, uh, you know, he's probably going to have a longer career than either of those two guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was at a gallery show of his recently, and, you know, it sort of struck me how his work is changing. And I think, you know, you spoke earlier about that consistency, and, you know, you still see that. There's still the stars and the color palettes mm-hmm. are somewhat consistent, and there's still collage work, right? But it's certainly, you know, if you look at the stuff from 10 years ago, it's pretty different. He's worked very hard to create a visual language of his own color palettes and styles where he doesn't have to beat you over the head with the Obey logo and Obey yeah. word, the, even the Obey word, um, the star, the lockup, the Andre face. He doesn't have to put that in the work and you still know what it is. Mm-hmm. And he's worked very hard to be able to do that. And I think that's a, a true sign of success. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it, it struck me looking at it that, you know, I never thought about him having a 30, 40 year career. Mm-hmm. Not that it, he needs me to think about that. Right. But, you know, I just think that brings such a different set of challenges. That's really interesting. Right. So how do you. You know, we hear of, of, you know, phases that artists go through, 
whether it's Picasso, right, where everything's just different. And they, like, they go, and, and I think musicians, same thing. They go through these kind of phases. Um, but kind of what you're saying is that it all has to kind of make sense together as a body of work. I, th I think, of course, once you're very successful, you can go off and do kind of whatever the hell you want and people will still be interested in it sure. because you have a huge audience. But to grow as an artist, yes, I think you need to show consistency in what you're doing and links to your past body of work. You know, if all of a sudden you're painting skulls and that's the, not what you, and you were doing landscapes before mm -hmm. and all your collectors buy landscapes, you know, right. you're probably going to, you just turned them and all their friends off probably. Yeah. So. Um, and then you, you also, you get to that level and I know, again, I know you've worked with, you know, a lot of very successful artists, um, that, you know, there has to be a lot of haters too. So many haters all the time. Um, I've dealt with that for years and years. You didn't put me in your magazine. You didn't put me in this book. The story wasn't right. Right. You put this other dude in that dude's a sucker. Everyone has their own story and their yeah. own version of things. I'm sure I've screwed up countless times on what I've done. Um, but in the end, if everybody likes you, you're probably not doing your job very well is, is really what I've come to learn. So is there something you do to not get distracted by that, to not get like sidetracked or does that just come natural? It just comes naturally. Yeah. Like, you know, there's going to be people that don't like stuff and that are talking trash, but what are those people doing that's on the same level of what you're doing? or the same level of the artist you're working with doing, et cetera. It's usually not. Um, so much of it is bitter graffiti writers that never, unfortunately, made a career for themselves. Yeah. Whatever they did for those six years, 12 years, 20 years was important to graffiti as a whole, as a culture. But the pain, you know, they've never did anything other than that and that was it and they still feel like they should be respected like they were when they were 22 yeah i respect them for what they did but like they're not the end-all be-all of the story they might have a great story sure. but like they're not it like them putting their name on a canvas and putting it in their show no one cares other than those 24 30 graffiti nerds care those yeah. people aren't going to buy anything yeah. so it's not that I don't respect it. I just, there's, there's not markets for it. And people get really salty and upset about that. So how do you know um, whose feedback then to listen to? And, and like... The, feed, the best feedback and criticism I get is from my friends that I trust. Some yeah. of the people that are even in the show, they're like, hey, we don't like how you did that. Like, next time, maybe do it like this. And they're not saying it like, hey, Roger, you're a dick. We don't want to work with you anymore. It's like... Right. Hey, like we know you're doing a lot of stuff and you can only manage so many things at a time. And sometimes things slip through or you might not realize how it's being perceived by other folks or this or that. Like, yeah. so why don't you pay attention to this or, Hey, this is how you can help us as opposed to doing something else you're doing. So, yeah. you know, some of it is, the, and it's not being said to me in a harsh, like we hate you mm -hmm. way. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, respectful way. Same thing when I talk to them sometimes about the bodies of work they're building. Yeah. So to me, the best criticism, no matter how harsh it is, in a way, comes from uh, from people that you can take it from. Mm -hmm. Because if they can teach me to be better, I'm going to help them be better. Uh, so you've mentioned in other interviews about 
that you need to have multiple projects going on at the same mm -hmm. time. You're not good at like just doing one thing. No. Uh, so how do you balance that with what you just said, right? That, that the other flip side of that is you get stretched too thin, Absolutely. you miss important details. Um, I have a good group of people I work with um, that are very good at multitasking. And I think being able to work on various things at the same time or things that run into each other uh, also helps. I'll meet mm -hmm. new collectors that I'm working on a book for whatever it is. And all of a sudden, a few people are like, oh, what else do you do? They want to buy some art. Or right. I'm working on a book for someone else. And I run across an archive of something that turns into another project. So mm -hmm. a lot of the projects continue to feed off of each other. Yeah and help each other sometimes short term sometimes long term um sometimes it's just i just hired a photographer for three different things instead of one and you know got a better rate um yeah so you know a, a, the, i just i work better in some kind of chaos than really straightforward i still like to have things done ahead of time yeah. and a very strict schedule and hit deadlines i don't like working in chaos meaning i'm hanging a piece of art right before we open um I, you know, I like things done ahead of time and very specific and clean and orderly, but the more things that I can uh, tag on in a way, I've found it usually works out the best for everyone. Mm -hmm. Did you, how'd you learn that along the way? How did what? How'd you learn that about yourself? I don't know how I learned that. It was just, I think I was always just doing a million things. Um, I'm not like super like, ADD or anything. I mean, I'm definitely probably fairly, but um, you know, I can sit down and pay attention to something for long periods of time if yeah. if it needs done, and you know, can pay really good attention to detail with things. But I don't know. I just I like more things. Like, you know, I, I can watch TV and you know, be having a conversation with someone and sending emails like at the same time. And yeah. someone gets mad, you're not paying attention, but you can repeat back, you know, what the person has said and having digested it. Mm -hmm. Just how my brain works, I guess, for better or worse. Are you ever um, afraid of like an undertaking is too big? Things definitely become scary in a way. I mean, the show we're sitting in now, um, Launching something on Black Friday through a few days after Christmas is scary. Mm -hmm. um, while it seems like the perfect time to sell things, it's also a scary time because everyone's away. Yeah. So it's made us work harder. Um, the, you know, we've had a lot of great successes in here, but also there's three dozen collectors I would have loved to come through the door that I haven't been able to get in. Um, that could come in and I know would really enjoy the work they're good collections and if, even if five of, of the three dozen people bought something I would have at least they've got would have gotten to see the show the show has now changed mm -hmm. so they won't get to experience it as a whole there's still great things for them to see but they're not coming in because they're being rude and they don't like the stuff it's like right. sorry like I'm in Mexico my husband just surprised me or I'm here I'm like yeah you know, I feel like people just checked out this year at Thanksgiving. So sure. that was, um, has made me work harder and is a challenge, but I'm never really afraid of the scope of things because again, I have a good team and good partners I work with that I know we can get things done. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, of course, if it's this, I've also been realistic about what we can and cannot front and pay for ourselves you know where you need partners and yeah 
other other people to work on things. Yeah. How do you know? Uh, you talked a lot about having the right team around you. How do you decide that somebody's right for somebody you want to work with? Trial and error a lot too. Um, I also don't fully just you know not putting an ad on Craigslist like looking for a new assistant. Right. Um, it's so many of the people I work with. Uh, I've known for a long time. It's been or word of mouth yeah. or through a friend. Yeah. Um, all the people, the four people I have right now, full time, same way. Like all word of mouth. Yeah. Easy references. Um, sure. Things like that. If I were uh, one of those four people, what would I hear you say a lot? Good question. Do you have, do you have like, no, nothing, uh, uh, nothing I want to repeat here. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. There's probably a lot of things you would hear me say a lot. Nothing I should repeat here. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but is there anything like, you know, how would those people describe your style as a leader? motivated multitasking to the fact or probably driving them crazy half the time with like the 12 things I have them flip flop back and forth on a day. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of working for me. I think the hardest part of the job is the cumulative knowledge mm. because I could get someone to come in tomorrow. That's great at sales, but they don't know the last 10 years of what we've done. The last 15 right. years of what we've done the last six months of what we've done. So a lot of the, the people that work for me now, well, of course they don't know everything we've done. You know, they know enough and they've learned the names of, hey, send this to this person, send this to that, call this, and like, you know, and they know who they can depend on for what and do things without having to ask me. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so much of it really is just cumulative knowledge and being able to retain that and jump back and forth yeah. between projects. Yeah, I mean, I found that as a business owner that like, you lose that every time somebody walks out the door. There's my knowledge personally of what I've amassed, but there's also this yeah. knowledge that you accumulate as a group. And, and each time there's a personnel change, some of that information leaves with them. Yep. I do my best to you know keep, keep people around as long as I can, keep them happy. And yeah. as shitty as of jobs of some of what they have to do from the rocks that are out front, like in the little whatever the hell areas it is. If you're uh -huh. going to Home Depot and carrying rocks and putting them in, you're also then dressing nice, walking around at an opening and talking to people about buying and, you know, yeah. selling art. Yeah. So everybody does a little bit of everything um, with me um, mm -hmm. from shitty, dirty, annoying jobs of mopping the floors in here to, right. you know, the fancy stuff. And it, I'm doing the same. Like, I'm not sitting back being like, I'm not going to carry that. You do that. Like, sure. Is that better than having people super specialized? I think it makes everyone stronger and respect everybody's job more because certain people, of course, do things more than the other. Yeah. But I think it makes it so anyone can step in and support that other person with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you had, uh, who's been important mentors for you along the way? I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, um, mentors, I mean, there's so many people that have helped me 
that I've asked questions to through the years. Um, so like what's something important that somebody taught you or helped you with? You don't have to give the person's name if you Yeah. Um, okay, I got another one. Um, there's been countless people that yeah. that have helped me, whether it's from doing agency work to um, setting up an e-commerce store to mm -hmm. rates to pay people to ways to deal with collectors. Um, but there's not like one person that was responsible for something. Okay. Um, because again, I'm jumping around doing so many different things. There's yeah. So many different people I've asked advice of sure. and have been helpful yeah. and very generous through the years. Well, I think that's a different skill, right? Is being able to pick up knowledge from everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, often those, that big mentor is not going to appear to us, right? But it's going to be these small So much of it's been trial and error. Yeah. And then asking the right questions or, again, just as something happens, just call and ask somebody or even just friends that I wouldn't say do similar things, but like things mm -hmm. that are, you know, better at running budgets or better at this, better at that, asking their advice as things go on or just bouncing what you want to do off them and seeing if you're crazy. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. if you're crazy, if they think it'll work. <laughs> right. Um, so talk about working with brands a little bit. Cause I know you've done a lot of that. Um, and, the one that jumped out to me is, is Hello Kitty. I know you, mm -hmm. you do a lot of work with them. Um, what does Hello Kitty know that most brands don't? I probably should not talk about Hello Kitty. Okay. I can, in like a larger scope, talk about it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, not because they're a thing bad, but there's sensitive no that's totally fine we don't want to um, upset hello kitty but I, so i've i work with a lot of brands through the years uh i've worked less and less with brands the last few years just because i got kind of burned out on it yeah and i don't like whoring myself out as much in that way um but we still do uh, if there's brands we like and we're into or the project makes mm -hmm. sense and we're excited about the project and we can do the project where it's not just emotion that we're doing. Yeah. We definitely do it. Um, the last five, six years, Sanrio, uh, the parent company of Hello Kitty has been the biggest brand we've worked with and probably 80% of the brand work I've done and my partners have done and they're exciting to work for because they always want to do something new and different. Uh, the Hello Kitty convention we did at the end of 20, what year is it now? 2015. The end of, that we did at the end of 2014 yeah. was for 30,000 people. It was lectures. It was panels. It was product. It was photo ops. It was experiences. It was so many different things. Putting together something like that is exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not a Hello Kitty fan. Sure. Uh, you know, I didn't collect it as a child or any Sanrio characters, mm -hmm. um, but I understand the collector mentality of their audience and yeah. I understand the fandom of it. So not being the insider fan, but understanding them and then understanding how the brand works. It's been very enjoyable working for them, even though it's events I would probably never go to mm -hmm. working for them in creating these events 
I think we've been valuable assets to each other. We've learned a lot from each other. You know? And that doing the convention where we've done every element of things that we need to do for the convention. We've never done every element like that at once. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that was a whole crazy test on management. Uh, yeah. One of my oldest and closest friends, Ian, I work with on a lot of those projects, him and his company, and you know, we put our heads together and figure it out. Yeah. And we learn a lot of it as we go. And um, just most important thing we, we I learned from working with on the corporate jobs is always have a backup. You know? Yeah. Always be Absolutely. overstaffed, always be ready, and always be ready for, for some kind of shit show. Mm -hmm. And be um, patient. So what about uh, the brands that have gotten the best out of you and out of, uh, out of the affiliation with art more broadly? Like, what do they do that other brands need the, to learn? The brands from? that have gotten the best out of me and what I do and out of the artists I work with, let us do what we do and explain to us what their brand guidelines are and what they would like to see and can give us some clear direction. And of course they art direct and push things here or there, but they respect what we're doing mm -hmm. and let us be us. Mm -hmm. And that has, to my knowledge, 100% of the time been successful. As soon as they start tweaking things, or as soon as they decide, you know what, our brand is so strong, we don't need to hire a publicist for this, we don't need right. to do advertising. We're like, yeah, you probably do. They're like, but this artist is popular. I'm like, yeah, but no one knows it's happening. Right. Um, yeah. I think the biggest mistake brands make when we work with them is not doing the proper advertising and marketing to go with it, mm -hmm. or their advertising and marketing team don't understand what we're doing for them, and they don't want to... You know, they'll spend six figures to do something and they won't spend the extra 10% to push it out the right way. Right. Um, yeah. But I think you can say that in the music industry, you can mm -hmm. say that so many places is you can get an incredible product, but if the right people don't know it exists, it's not going to go anywhere. You know, as a, someone working with brands, as a consultant, as a manager, as a director, creative director, producer, whatever you want to call me, you know, different things at different times. We can only do so many aspects of the job. We can't always make the people come. We can direct you with how to make the people come, but if you're not hiring me to make people come, if no one shows up, like, I didn't fail. I succeeded in what I needed to do. Right. Your job was to get people to come. Yeah. What about more broadly about brands and art? Like, what are the best, maybe, you know, stuff maybe you didn't work on or before your time or whatever, like what are the things you look at as the best of those partnerships? I look at a lot of the old absolute ads, honestly, and think they're really edgy, interesting, and uh, you know, they, they did something. Yeah. Um, not as much anymore. Um, yeah. I think, which is a newer thing, it's not as art driven, but it's arty the the whole creators project thing mm -hmm. is so interesting and yeah. not overly brand driven but like just an incredible project um i'm sure others will come to mind but off the top yeah one are, of my biggest like? disappointments well i i pitched absolute right before they walked away from art. I think they had already kind of decided to walk away from art, but I pitched them a whole new generation of artists. 
um, and I probably would have called you to, to help me execute it. Um, uh, and, and I'm probably not the only one that pitched that either, but like, to me, that was like, you know, I would have been so excited to work on a project like that, right? To take a brand that had done it mm -hmm. right and, and up, update it and bring that into a new generation. I think a, a brand like Supreme even yeah. works with artists really well, an artist you wouldn't expect from an artist and from a musician to a sports person yeah. to a visual artist to a photographer to a band and remix things mm -hmm. and bring it to a whole new audience that wouldn't know what the hell it is. Yeah. Um, like I, I see like the Misfits collaboration with Supreme a few years ago. Like, mm -hmm. Sure, people probably recognize the Crimson Ghost record or logo and some people maybe have Walk Among Us, but it's just introducing right. it to a whole new audience. So yeah. I... I Things like that excite me and when they're done well. Mm -hmm. um, Huff has been doing really cool stuff too. Yeah, um, They just did the Patrick Nagel thing. They did a Stay High 149 thing. They, they do things because they like them. Mm -hmm. I think not because, ooh, we're gonna sell units. Right. And it gets out there, the education. Mm -hmm. The Patrick Nagel Huff thing was one of the more exciting things I've seen in a while. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I love the, the we, BM. We tried to get Patrick Nagel in the show. Oh, really? Met with his widow, like oh, wow. every, everything. Like, yeah. I had the pieces picked out I wanted. No way. Didn't work. Um, okay. Favorite art movies? Hmm. Favorite art movies? I don't know if I have any favorite art movies. What was the first one that you remember seeing that, like, I mean, Style Wars, Wild Style, th those are the first real art movies I remember seeing okay. but I mean the first movie I can remember watching over and over and over again is Sid and Nancy uh -huh. and a VHS copy of it nice. that and the decline of the western civilization yeah. uh, maybe even decline of the western civilization before the Sid and Nancy movie um, I don't know if you'd count that as an art movie but it's an art movie in a way sure. um, those are the things that I'm into nice. I don't really watch that many document I watch them but I don't like most documentaries and they bore me. I like watching really stupid comedies. Okay. Um, like horrible, horrible movies that I won't mention <laughs> the names of. That's what I enjoy. Um, nice. But then I sit here and make like nerdy documentaries. So, you know, makes no sense. Okay. Um, I also black out when I take, when I give, when I have to have my blood taken and get a shot, but I'm covered in tattoos. So that doesn't really make any sense either. All right. Um, okay, last question for real. You have on your website, you have a street pizza hashtag. Yeah. What's the fascination? I can't tell the whole street pizza story. One, one day we'll tell it. Okay. Um, there's some film footage I'm still waiting on that goes with the origins of it. Okay. Um, it's good. Just wait for it. Yeah. Wait, wait for, wait for, wait for the, the true definition one day. All right. And until then, just keep enjoying it. And if you see it on the street, send me a picture. Nice. Well, we'll stay tuned for that. Um, okay. Before I stop, uh, what young artists should we be checking for? So many different people have uh, different definitions of young artists or a young artist means a piece that's a thousand dollars or this or that. To me, a young artist or, or people that have become established and they're still rising you know they are true emerging artists and those are some of the people i work with some of the people that are in the show you know young artist to me is pose richard coleman revoke 
Cleon Peterson. I mean, those are you know four of my favorite you know young younger artists. They're in their thirties, nice, and they've proven they're real artists. They're not going anywhere. That's what they're doing for a living, and it's supporting them. And they're building huge, amazing bodies of work, and they're going to continue pushing what they're doing. So to me, like they are young artists to watch. You know, they're not you know fifty, sixty years old and you know seasoned. You know, yeah. they're, they're still young and new. Cool. So how do we follow what you're up to online? Um, RogerGasman.com, RRockEnterprises.com, uh, Instagram. I'm not on Facebook or anything like that, but that, that usually is things posted next year for 2016. The biggest stuff is going to be uh, the Wall Riders film and um, the Wall Riders book. And I guess other young artists that I'm excited about that I probably really should have just mentioned, but I'm staring at all these other people's name right in front of me is <laughs> Dabs Myla, the, the Australian couple uh, uh-huh. that I work with. We just had a huge show with them uh, in collaboration with Modernica that we sold out. That was incredible, and they're doing such amazing things. So the MTV Movie Awards set this year, uh, they, they just they, they keep pushing the limits too and are very important to watch. They would have been in the show, but we just had a huge show with them. So nice that's why they're not here cool well thanks man i appreciate the opportunity to catch up thank you great great yo that was roger gassman if you if you like that uh, go to rogergassman.com and you'll see some of his other projects some great art this guy's involved with if you're into art hit him up online and, and follow what he's up to and follow rebel radio at rebel radio net on twitter Subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on SoundCloud. Leave us a comment, a nine-star review, whatever you feel like. And come back next week for more Rebel Radio.